This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance, supporting America's sugar producers and saluting all of agriculture for continuing to feed America. Every facet of the U.S. agriculture industry has been challenged in one way or another by the COVID-19 pandemic, and the seed industry was certainly no exception. Andrew Levine with the American Seed Trade Association says many of its members and associated retail outlets would benefit from some assistance from Washington to help cover financial exposure for this year's crop. We would like to see in legislation coming up or assistance coming up something that would help, especially our regional family seed companies that are are looking to carry over through the season. They've worked very closely with their growers, maybe extending credit and other things to help them out. And they could use some just operating loans at as low a rate as possible that would help them through the seasons. You know, it's just as tough on uh, the seed companies as it is on the growers and that kind of assistance. They're not asking for the, a direct payment, but something that would help them business-wise to carry through that uh, to the next season. Do you think that COVID has been a wake-up call for consumers about where and how we get our food? I think it's becoming to becoming that, Jeff, as we start to see some of the impacts of it, as people start to analyze the food value chain, as people start to see uh, what we can produce here domestically and what we can produce internationally. I don't think we would have ever imagined that this would have the impact that it would have, whether it's on the meat supply and everything that goes through that system, the food supply, all the way up through, you know, paper products. And it just hit every single sector of that grocery store and, therefore, every single sector of our refrigerator and our our pantries and our kitchen. So those kind of things people are starting to realize. It's a tough one to put your hands around as I participate in a lot of the various groups I do here in Washington. People trying to figure out how do we get that from the seed going into the ground all the way through to the table, whether it's in your kitchen or in your family room, dining room, or whether it's in your restaurant. That's It's a tough one for even the biggest companies like Walmart to try to get their hands around. Andy, do you find it interesting today that consumers are really looking to science to resolve this global pandemic? Or maybe they're willing to use a product like CBD that hasn't been necessarily approved yet by government and, and, and an endorsement. But yet they have still so much pushback to seed technology and crop protection products that farmers need to guarantee that food supply. That really is, it's, I guess it's a double-edged sword there, Jeff. We look at it from that standpoint of it's really positive that they do look to the science. We have heard more about, you know, to follow the science, let's trust the science from our legislative and regulatory community here in the U.S. than we've heard it in a long, long time. And that's greatly appreciated. And so we think from that standpoint it's quite a positive. But it is also um, frustrating when we look at it that we go through such extensive processes to review, uh, test, analyze uh, new seed coming into the marketplace, new transgenic or biotechnology products or new crop protection products, 10 10, 12, 15 years of testing to show it's safe when used properly, all of that. And it's, there's still that apprehension to use it. And this is innovation. This is like the new phone that you've got or your new car that you've got and all the innovation in there. And we've got to continue to work to, to um, uh, 
uh, help people understand and trust that part of the system, make it as transparent as possible, and help uh, put the put the thumb on our legislative community and regulators to talk about it and, and trust it. Globally, we're seeing now some pushback from existing trading partners on some long-standing herbicides. And despite some of these new trade agreements that we have, it seems those countries are deliberately slow in approving uh, the process for new seed traits. How challenging is this? Well, when we've been working on it as many years as we have as an industry, it's, it's pretty frustrating. I did want to give uh, Secretary Purdue and his team, Under Secretary McKinney and, and others, a lot of credit for them keeping this issue at the front of the table whenever they're talking with our trading partners. But it is frustrating when you look at it. We get the same, uh, I would say, promises. We have the same discussions. We have the same, quote-unquote, press releases every time we finish a, a discussion with a, with a trading partner, and then nothing happens. And we're waiting for that. Uh, what's that certain process that China will use to review new biotechnology traits so that we can move them into the marketplace? And, and what is the analysis and science that Mexico is using to uh, potentially phase out, oh, well, I should say Mexico and France, to potentially phase out glyphosate? And where is this coming from all of a sudden that the world seems to be moving either more toward a precautionary principle or just to string out innovation and, and not approve things? And I thought that with USMCA we had resolved some of these issues. And I thought with China in the Phase 1 trade agreement and in our discussion, there were promises that these new traits were going to see a more expedited process. But those seem to be pretty empty words right now. Well, they are, Jeff. We worked very closely with our counterparts in Mexico and with the embassy there and, and various players in the agriculture arena. We thought there was a path forward. We also, at the same time, had a new administration coming down there, and that is, that has had a, uh, a negative impact on that relationship. And I think given where we are in the political cycle with this presidential election, I believe that we're not going to see a lot of movement with either China or Mexico in these policies until after the election, and they analyze what administration they're dealing with, whether it's a second term of a Trump administration or a Biden administration. How's Brazil handling this situation? We've seen continued consolidation in the ag industry, and certainly that includes seeds. Aside of approval of these new deals uh, from ours and other governments, is this really opening the door to some new fights over existing intellectual property? And what about future battles over seed and trades? Well, I think one of the things that, that's very obvious in this kind of situation, at least to me, is you look at it uh, in your previous question, that whole issue of uh, getting products approved in foreign markets and then maintaining those approvals. Whether we're talking about crop protection products or biotechnology or other seed products, it's quite expensive. And the medium-sized companies, it's very, very difficult to do, and we know it's near impossible to do for large companies, given the amount of time that approval takes. So that's a lot of the pressure on the consolidation side of it. I think the intellectual property is going to continue to be uh, an absolutely vital understanding and recognition as we look at new innovations. I think new innovations will shed some light on potential issues or challenges within the intellectual property system because of how we can create new seed varieties or new technology or new crop protection products, and we'll have to handle that as they evolve. But I think intellectual property is what 
brings new products to market. And it's quite amazing, uh, Jeff, I'm sure you, you've seen it, is there is an incredible amount of new venture capital money coming into the food and agriculture sector looking to improve some processes, looking to uh, enhance sustainability, looking to provide farmers better tools or different tools, and all of that comes with intellectual property. You know, I can understand if we're talking about a patent for a widget, for a thing that does something, but this is the patent of a living thing. Well, and it, it is with, just like with any other product, though, as you look at it, if you create something that's new and novel and unique, you have the ability to protect that. We have plenty of things that are living things that were protected at one point and are now in the marketplace as a, a generic and can be used that way. So what is the incentive for somebody to create something new and improved if you can't protect it and, and reinvest your money into new research going forward? So I think there's, there's that balance there with the intellectual property. If it's nothing new and you haven't created anything novel, then you shouldn't be able to protect it. So in the same vein, what are some of the new innovations that we're seeing now in, in plant breeding, new techniques or, or new possibilities? And, and then as a loaded question, is our review process and approval process in the U.S. regulatory system up to speed with where our science is today? Well, if it's all right with you, Jeff, I'll start with the last question first. And I, I think um, there, we're really seeing uh, quite a revolution in plant sciences. I know in animal sciences as well, but we focus in the plant science arena. The discovery is is just rapidly changing and improving uh, almost on a daily basis. Much of it coming from our land-grant institutions, other colleges and universities. Yeah, even the University of California, Berkeley, has a plant genetics center that's doing amazing, incredible work. So that is changing so rapidly that it's it's pretty impossible for the federal government to keep up with that rapid change. And when they look to make regulation or Congress looks to pass a law, they look to pass it as it is today. And so they write the bill or the regulation today. usually takes them two to four years to get that done. And so by the time they pass something, they're four to five years behind what, where we were. So we took a leap forward, and they're trying to regulate us like we were five years ago or seven years ago. And so that's always going to be a challenge. And our goal at AST is to bring the government up to speed on how plant breeding and, and plant discovery is evolving. And we're doing a lot of that right now, and it's pretty neat stuff. On the former question, one of the things that is on the forefront right now with respect to techniques is gene editing and that ability to go in and focus on specific characteristics within a plant and just go in and make modifications there. You may go to a wild type of um, uh, raspberry and be able to take the sour characteristics out of that or silence them and insert from a domestic variety a sweet characteristic that enables you to have more of a robust, sweet flavor in raspberry and possibly even uh, modify the shelf life for it. Uh, we've got some companies doing that today. and The gene editing really helps you focus on specific characteristics instead of trying to do sections where you're not going to be uh, as exact and you're going to impact other parts of the, the production. You've got the same thing in oils for soybean. Um, you've got the same in, in uh, quality of protein in soybean. It's just about anything that you can think of in plants today. You've got various public and private sector 
researchers discovering and then determining how do we breed this into this variety to enhance it. One of the favorite ones I like to talk about is a researcher at the University of Florida has identified the flavor characteristics for a um, heirloom tomato, and he's trying to figure out how we would best take those characteristics and put them into a conventionally bred tomato for the marketplace. And we all know, any of us that have attempted to grow an heirloom, how great they taste, but how hard they are to produce and how low they yield. So how can we make that modification? It's a tomato. It's a tomato family. We've bred other tomatoes from heirlooms. But how do you take that good quality part of the heirloom and get it into one that produces very well? Andy, from your perspective, can you see a growth or an increase in organic crop production? I can. We've seen it just through this uh, time period with COVID. You know, a lot of people, as they're shopping, they're looking for those and a lot more production there. And there are some really interesting things going on, Jeff, in the whole area of biologicals that if they're classified properly, they will be production-enhancing tools, will help with pest and disease and other things. And so, there, there, again, there's a lot of discovery there that will enable the organic arena to continue to grow. The question, I think, is how much will it grow? What part can it take within the supermarket? I see a lot of the growth and change in this is in uh, soil health, in regenerative agriculture, however you define that, because there's a bunch of definitions out there. The American farmer is looking to do the best thing possible produce the best product possible on their land and keep that land productive. And if, if it's a good opportunity to go organic or go partial organic, they will look to, to do that. They're looking for those opportunities, and, and I think they'll adopt as the market demands and as opportunities avail themselves. There's a lot of discussion in Washington today about new policy toward climate change and the possibility even that farmers might be rewarded for certain farming practices that sequester carbon, and clearly cover crops are one of those that would qualify. Do you see an increase in demand for cover crops, and how is that market developing? We do see an increase in demand, and there was just a recent study that came out. We did it with CTIC um, and... Sustainable Agriculture Research Education Program, or SARE, actually just released the results from the 2019 season, and it shows a continued growth in the use of cover crops. You know, the, the farmers that did put a cover crop in last year, they were able to get in their field sooner and plant a better crop, more consistent crop throughout that wet spring that we had in 2019. And as far as evolution of that sector of our industry, is the cover crop seed sector is, is growing rapidly. We've got a number of companies that are collaborating with the larger corn and soybean seed companies and providing seeds through to their farmer customers. The industry is doing a lot of research and testing to try to determine what are the best mixes depending on the soil you have and what you're trying to do. So there's a lot going into it, and uh, it continues to grow as, as the demand is there. Are you seeing some challenges still with tariffs on moving seed in and out of the country? We are. Our major issue right now is with China. For a number of years, our companies, especially those that produce varieties of crops that are open pollinated, this would be a lot of flower crops, a lot of the vegetable crops, our pollinator industry, all oftentimes take hand pollination and hand harvesting. You can imagine the challenge of that, and a lot of our companies have developed relationships with Farmers and villages in China have been doing this for 20-plus years, 
They're on small acres. Oftentimes you'll have one variety is produced on less than one acre. It's just not something that's possible to produce in most other countries. The beauty of producing in China as well as the agronomic sector is or the agronomic zone is very similar to the U.S., so you're producing it in a similar zone. And we're sending the parents over to China for multiplication and bringing them back to the U.S. for conditioning and sale here in the U.S., and we're having to pay a 25% tariff on it now. We got a waiver for the first year and a half or so that the administration put in the tariff, and then they just recently denied us an extension of that waiver, and uh, we're trying to work with them. Pretty disappointed in, however, that decision-making process went forward because this impacts America's uh, farmers, America's gardeners, and, and others across the country. Andy, what did we learn about the mystery seed situation, presumably from China? And does this create some concerns about border protection from noxious weeds or other biological threats? Well, we learned that a lot of people have interest in mystery packets of seed. Talking to one of the major publications here in the U.S., newspapers, it was the top hit on their website for three weeks in a row. And it was a, a pretty amazing. It was, it, was, uh, it was a really disappointing situation, and it was one that we've still got to determine how this happened. We know that it's also hit in up to 10 other countries, same kind of distribution, same kind of packaging. So... USDA APHIS has gotten on this pretty quickly. They're interacting with these other countries as well as evaluating as much as possible to determine where it came from and what the packages are. I know they've tested over 4,000 packets as of the last time I talked with them. They're finding all kinds of seeds, including weed seeds and others, that, that are obviously a major concern. And so, you know, people will see that packet and not really think about it. Say, yeah, I'll go ahead and try to plant it. And, and we know from other examples that things can get out of control pretty quickly if they're not careful and we don't know what we're planting. So we did a lot of work in that area, working with the U.S. government and Customs and Border Protection and the U.S. Postal Service and others to try to see what we can do in the future. Unfortunately, Jeff, it was mislabeled. It was labeled as jewelry, and so there was no reason for anyone to analyze it or question it or stop the shipment. And so once it hit the distribution system here in the U.S. it was distributed. And so we're working to figure out how that uh, happened and, and what we can do in the future working to stop that potential. But uh, I know the, the government is working with the Chinese uh, Ministry of Agriculture and their post as well to, to see how this all unfolded. Somebody did this maliciously and with intent. The Chinese believe that the post label or the stamp on each of the packages is counterfeit. And so that makes it even more challenging, could come from anywhere in the world. The, the, that frustrating part is that the intent to do this was, was there. So here's a bigger picture question as we wrap up. What does the seed industry need, either from governments or consumers or farmers, to continue to work toward meeting the challenge of food security? Well, there's, I guess there's a number of things here as, as you look at that question. Um, I think from the governments, it, they need to be a partner as we continue to innovate. And I'm using the big picture we here, Jeff, because we work very, very closely with our public so, uh, sector researchers. They play a key role in how we develop new products for the marketplace. And whether that marketplace is your garden on your patio or your backyard garden or your 2,000 acres of soybeans or lettuce or whatever you're producing, 
we work to try to um, hand in hand develop new products for farmers as challenges continue to hit them. You know, whether it's pest disease, climate change, others. But the government has to be a partner here and has to move at a pace that that innovation isn't stalled or stopped. And we're concerned that there are some, some places where it may get stopped. Consumers also have to play a part that, you know, America's farmers are looking to be sustainable, looking to maximize the, the inputs that they have with the least impact on the environment or human health or uh, animal health. You know, any of those things are uh, a, a key concern for America's farmers to bring good products, safe products to the marketplace. And then uh, there needs to be an understanding from the consumer side of expectation. This is probably the first time in a very, very long time that the American public saw what a food shortage could be. And it was it was somewhat a panic shopping there for a while, at least through March. And a lot of things happened. And there's an expectation that, you know, it'll always be on my shelf. I don't have to worry about it. But they don't think about all of the people down the line that are producing the product that ultimately ends up on their table, whether it's a kitchen table or whether it's in the restaurant. And that's one thing I think that um, we've got to figure out how to get back to and have that understanding and respect for the people who bring that food through to their table. Andy, we appreciate your work on behalf of your industry, the American Seed Trade Association, and all the effort that you put in to provide the seed that we need for the food that we need. We want to thank you for being a part of this edition of Open Mic. It is open mic, and you have the last word today. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it always, and, and it's always a pleasure working with you and your team there at AgriPulse. So thanks for that. Uh, I'd just like to say to all, the, all your listeners that the seed industry realizes that this is really a challenging time for all Americans, and especially America's farming and ranching families. We stand beside you to continue to bring you new discoveries and innovation that will produce high-performing seed varieties that will help meet your production and sustainability goals and We just want to be there as a partner, continue to be a partner with you in the future. And thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it very much. And uh, just to all your listeners, please be safe out there. Our thanks to Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance, an appreciation of the essential work performed every single day by farmers, ranchers, and everyone across the agriculture supply chain. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.